If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open to John chapter 12. If you don't have your Bible with you, on the back of the handout, the passage is already there as well. Or go ahead and find that on your cell phone, on the internet, John chapter 12. Now, one of the things I I enjoy very much doing is going back and spending time with my family. I don't get to do that as much, uh, considering my family lives thousands of miles away in Brazil. But when you go back, it's always enjoyable to spend time with other people, except there's one part of, of family gatherings that you're not always sure about, and that's when people start telling stories about the past. Sometimes you're, you're, you're just a little worried about what story are they going to tell about you. And depending on who's telling the story, you can kind of guess what part you're going to play in that story. If it's your younger sister telling the story about what it was like growing up with you, you have a guess as to what role you're going to play in the story she's going to tell. And sometimes we're like apprehensive, like, or, or sometimes we're surprised when we hear these stories and your parents tell you something and you're like, wait a second. What did I do when I was a kid? And I did No, no, that's not how I remember that. I have a whole different way of looking at that. What we've been seeing so far in the Gospel of John is this sovereign plan, specifically in the last couple of weeks. Throughout chapter 11, we saw how God's sovereign plan was playing out. And we saw that God was, is the main player. He's the hero. Christ raises Lazarus from the dead. He tells them, this is what I'm going to do, and he does it. He's the main character, the hero of the story. But there's supporting roles. There's other people in it. Last week, we looked at the chief priests and the Pharisees. We looked at Caiaphas, and we saw the role that they played in that story, and it's not a role that I would want a story told about if I was that person. But in our passage this morning, we're going to see different stories. Not just the negative side, but also those who are a positive part of the story. The question that all of us should be asking, though, is what part are we playing in this story? What part are you going to play in the great story of redemption that God is telling? I can't answer that question for you. That's a question that you need to be evaluating for yourself. Now, let me give a caution as we're proceeding in this. What I don't want you to hear from this is, hey, be the hero of your story. That's not a biblical idea. You can't be the hero of your story. When we read scripture, the hero of the story time and time again is God. It's Jesus Christ who comes and conquers. It's not us. And so thankfully, there is a very good thing where what our desire is to be Christ-centered, scripture-saturated, and to look and see what Christ did, that Christ did the work that we could not do. That's a great way. We don't want to look at David, and think, okay, listen, you might have a Goliath in your life, but you have your sling and stone, and you go conquer that giant. David didn't conquer the giant. God conquered the giant. 
We don't want to look at the story of the 5,000 and say, what are the 5,000 that you need to feed? That all you have is five loaves and two fish, but you know what? You have enough. They didn't have enough. Christ was enough. So, so the difference, what I don't want us to do as we go through this passage is to think, okay, be the hero. You're enough. You're not enough. That being said, we don't then want to go so far as to say the only hero is, is Jesus and we look at everyone else as a bad example. No. David in that story is a positive example of one who has faith in the face of a great enemy. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so what we do have, when we even think of of Hebrews 11 that gives this great hall of witnesses that talks about all of these people, all of these humans and how they lived, that's a good thing for us to look at. And it's not wrong for us to want to say, I want to have a faith like David. I want to have a testimony like Paul. That's an okay thing. Understanding, though, that ultimately the one who does that work is Christ. So this morning, we're going to go through this, and we're going to be looking at different examples. We're going to look at three different vignettes, three different little episodes, and in each of those, we're going to see a contrast of those who are part of God's plan as, as a positive place versus those who play a different role. Now, don't get me wrong. All of us play a part. Whether you are in Christ or not, you have a part in God's story. But if you are going to be the positive part, if you are going to be the willing participant, there's a way in which that happens. So here's our big idea. In Christ, our privilege is to be a positive part of his plan. In Christ, our privilege is to be a positive part of God's plan. Let's start by looking at verses 1 through 3. Six days before the Passover, this is chapter 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment from pure, made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Look back over those verses and just see how much description is there. Just go ahead and look. How many things are used to describe what's happening? Here's here's what we're going to see as our first point. Worship like Mary. If you have your handout, that's what I want you to write down first. Worship like Mary. Right now, this is, Jesus has left. In in the last passage, the the chief priests and the Pharisees are seeking to kill Jesus. And so it says, so therefore Jesus left and went to Ephraim and stayed there with his disciples. That happened right after Lazarus was raised. Now, we don't know how long Jesus was gone. It could be as much as a few months. Uh, It can't be more than that because we know it was after the Feast of Dedication where Hanukkah, which happens in November, and it's before Easter, which, you know, April. So it couldn't have been many months, but Jesus was gone. But now Jesus comes back. It's right before Passover, which right there we already have a foreshadowing of where this story is going. 
of what Jesus is going to do. This is the final week. But Jesus is here, and this is now the time where they want to celebrate what Jesus did for Lazarus. They didn't really have the opportunity before because immediately after he rose Lazarus from the dead, he had to leave or he chose to leave because they wanted to kill him. But now he's back and now they're celebrating. So they have this meal, Martha's serving, Lazarus is there at the table with with Jesus. They're reclining, they're on the floor. And look what Mary does. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Mary worships by showing Christ that Christ was worth much to her. Mary saw the worthiness of Jesus. That's what we talk about with worship. Worth that. He's worthy of worship. Mary goes to Jesus and she gives him something that is incredibly valuable. Later in the passage, it says that it was 300 denarii. So so just to put that into perspective, one denarii was the wages of a a day of labor, right? So so, um, a bricklayer, one day. Now, we might think, okay, so it's almost a year's wages. No, but you have to add in Sundays, that they didn't work, and festivals, which the Jews have many festivals. So 300 days, 300 denarii, this is an entire year's salary. She gives Jesus an expensive perfume. What she does is she anointed him. This is a story that's told in in two of the other Gospels, both in Matthew and in Mark. There's a different account in Luke of a different time where someone uh, anointed Jesus' feet, but that's not this one. So this passage talks, there's three different times in the Gospels that this story is told. And in Mark, it says that she broke the flask. She used it all on Jesus. What is Mary demonstrating in this act that Jesus is of supreme value to her. There is nothing that she owns, there is nothing that she is going to hold on to say, well, I'm not sure Christ is worth that. She opens her hand of it and she uses this in her worship. In her worship, she shows the value she places on Christ. Now, this wasn't a good investment strategy. There's a lot of of, of wrong theology now that says, you know what? Plant the seed of blessing. Start the process. Prime the pump. Give a little bit to God, and he's going to give you a whole lot more. Now, there are elements of that which are true, but we need to define our terms. What the wrong way is to say, listen, if you give him one bottle of perfume worth 300, he'll give you 10 bottles of perfume worth so much more. That's not what Mary's doing. Mary's not making a wise investment choice. She is sacrificing. She is worshiping sacrificially. She's giving this up. It's gone. She doesn't get this perfume back at the end of the story. But this is the principle that we see. The one who is worthy of all worship is worth more than anything we can give. 
The one who is worthy of all worship is worth more than anything we can give. There is nothing you own that's not worth giving to Christ. That doesn't mean he's going to require it of you and say, all right, spend it up, give it away, put a big sign that says free in front of your house. But would you be willing to? Would you be willing to give him anything if he truly is worthy of everything? The second way, though, that we see Mary worship is Mary worships by humbling herself before the Holy One. So how do we see Mary's humility? Well, again, like I said, this story is told in in two of the other Gospels, and yet the other Gospels bring out different elements of the story. For example, both Matthew and Mark talk about that Mary anointed Jesus' head. Now, that doesn't mean that we're looking and we're saying, wait a second, there's, there's an error here because two people are saying head, and, and now we see that John is saying feet. What, what's going on here? Well, both, all of the Gospels are trying to focus on a specific thing. They're pulling out specific elements. For both Matthew and Mark, they're showing Jesus as king, as the anointed one. And so for them, it's an important thing to show that Jesus' head was anointed, But even in Mark, Jesus says that she anointed his whole body. So why would John focus on what she did to his feet? Well, John actually talks about feet a lot. Three different times in in his gospel. The first time is back when he talks about John the Baptist. What does John the Baptist say about Jesus? There's someone that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. Now, when John the Baptist did that, when we were back there, what, what, what was that meaning? It was an expression of humility. People didn't touch feet, which we don't either. But they didn't do that because you're thinking sandals, it's dirty, it's, it's, it's dusty. They didn't drive around, they walked around. On, on, not on asphalt and concrete sidewalks, they walked in the dust, in the mud. And so it wasn't even allowed for higher servants to wash other people's feet because that was something relegated to the slaves, to the unworthy. But when John says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal, John is saying, he is so much higher than me. Then the other time that it talks about feet is in the next chapter, John 13, verse 2. What does Jesus do for his disciples? He washes their feet. And, how, and, and they're, they're cool with that, right? They look at that and they're like, yeah, let's do this. Let's get this done. Massage, you know, while you're at there, maybe a little pedicure. What do they do? They're like, no, Jesus, we're not worthy for you to do that. Don't touch our feet. That's the most unworthy part of us. Don't, no, stay away. But look at what Mary does. We see a shocking humility. Because not only does she anoint his feet, what does she then do? What does she use? She dries it with her hair. If feet were the most unworthy, the hair of the Jewish woman was a worthy, is an honorable thing. It was something that they did not let down. They kept tied up. They didn't show it. Do you see an imagery here that the most unworthy, and I'm not saying that there's an unworthy part of Christ, but the metaphor here, the imagery here, the lowest part of Christ was higher than the highest part of Mary. 
She literally put her head beneath his feet. She is demonstrating an immense humility. Not only is her worship giving worth to the most worthy, she is humbling herself beneath the most holy. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Here's the principle for us. A proud heart cannot truly worship Christ. If you come here in pride, which we all struggle with, we all have elements where we think, oh no, I'm the hero of this story. I'm going to do something. Then that is not the worship of spirit and in truth. But Mary comes humbly. Now what's the result What's the result of Mary's worship? Well, look what it says at the end of verse 3. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Who's writing this? Who's writing this account that we're reading right now? John. Who's one of the people that was there? John. Can Can you think of him writing this story and maybe just remembering that moment and they're all there they're, they're it's the pa- it's coming up to the passover they're maybe a little worried because they know people still want to kill jesus and then you just start this scent of pure nard just starts wafting through the house who is impacted by mary's worship everyone around her Mary's worship was not just something that was private, just her and God, and it didn't affect anyone around her. Everyone around her was impacted by the worship she showed to Christ. Here's the principle. The genuine worship of believers impacts those around us. Genuine worship is going to impact the people around you. But does everyone enjoy what she has done? Does it mean that it will impact positively everyone around you? Everyone's going to rejoice and like, oh man, this is awesome. It smells so good around here. Let's do a little bit more of this. No. Look what happens. Verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. The result of what Mary has done is not just the worship of God, it's also the rebuke from Judas. Verse 4 starts, but Judas. This is the contrast. He's playing a different role in this story. Judas did not appreciate Mary's worship, and John doesn't try to hide what some of us would see as the embarrassing part of the story of Christ. Oh, no, let's not talk about Judas because we don't want people to know. Let's just leave out. Let's, let's go back and edit the story, edit the history, and say, oh, Judas was just this some guy that showed up at the end of the story. We didn't know him. No, John says very clearly who he is. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him. Well, those feel like contradictory statements. One of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, that's hard for us. How could one who walked with Jesus be a traitor like Judas? How did Jesus let that happen? 
That's the reality of looking at God's plan is that there's a lot of parts that we look at and we're like, that doesn't make sense. Well, why, why did he let that happen? Jesus, why didn't you just pick a different 12th person? Because he picked Judas. But he knew what Judas was going to do. God knew. Here's two things I want you to know. First, everyone plays a part in God's plan. When I say in Christ, our privilege is to be a a positive part of his plan, that does not mean those who aren't in Christ are therefore not part of his plan. Judas is not in Christ. But Judas plays a part in this plan. That God will redeem and use for something positive, but his part is not positive. He played a negative role that God redeemed. That's the beauty of God's sovereignty is that he uses those things. What did we see last week? That the priests and Pharisees were definitely not in Christ, and yet they played one of the main parts of his plan. But they did not have the privilege of being positive parts. Here's a a principle for us. Earthly associations do not determine our spiritual reality. Now, what I'm not saying, and that's not, the the, the point of this passage is not to talk about, hey, um, you should, um, it doesn't matter who you hang out with. It does matter. It does matter who you're letting influence you. But that does not mean that we avoid the sinful avoid the world. We are meant to be a testimony to them. But what I am saying where we falsely use this idea is, look, I associate with Christians. I go to church. I'm there every week. I hear the message. I read the Bible. I think I'm good. That's not enough. Worldly associations, meaning the associations that we have in this world just by nature of spending time is not enough. What did Judas lack? What is the thing that John in his gospel is showing over and over and over again is the only hope? Christ. And how do we receive that hope? Believe. We believe in him. That's something that Judas has not done. He didn't believe, and so this is what he said. But Judas Iscariot said, verse 5, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, how many of you look at that and are like, I don't know, I kind of agree with Judas here. I do. I'm like, man, 300? Like, we're talking about $50,000, $60,000, $30,000, whatever. It's an astronomical fee, and you poured it out, you dumped it, It was for a moment, and then it was gone. So Judas makes this reasonable request. It's a really good argument. Humanly speaking, it seems like this was a waste. And and it's even ironic that that Mary kind of keeps on getting rebuked by what things that we would see as reasonable, right? Mary with Martha. Come on, Jesus, can't you tell her to come help me because I'm the one that's doing all the work? Again, I look at it, I'm like, seems reasonable to me. Here, hey, Could she not waste all of this money? We could have used it for something better. But that's the problem with the argument. We could have done something better. Was there something better for Mary than to sit at Jesus' feet? No. Was there something better for Mary to do than to offer everything to her Savior? No. See, Mary's worship is a worship that shows someone that she has Christ in the right position in her life. How about Judas? Does Judas have Jesus in the right position? Look what it said. 
in verse, uh, in verse 6, he said this, or 7, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. What's behind that reasonable request? It's greed. Here's a principle for us. Deceitful desires are often disguised behind reasonable arguments. Deceitful desires are often disguised behind reasonable arguments. Notice the contrast here in this part. Mary sees Jesus as worth everything. She gives what is worth much to the one who is worthy of all. She humbles herself before him. Judas doesn't give anything he takes. He doesn't humble himself before Christ. He confronts Christ. He challenges him and he says, isn't there something better than this? But he does it in ways that seem reasonable. How often do we withhold our worship because we've come up with reasonable arguments? No, no, you don't understand. I can't be with the body of Christ. I have work, and if I don't sleep, then, and, and if I don't sleep, I'm not going to work well, and if I don't work well, I'm not going to have the money, that, the promotion I need, and if I don't have the promotion I need, I'm not going to be able to support my family. You don't want me to not support your, my family, do you? Problem is, where's the trust in that? It's all on you. I, 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 we need to do these things. We do this all the time. We come up with these reasonable arguments. And I'm not saying you guys. I do this all the time. These reasonable requests, these reasonable reasons for not to worship God the way in which we are told to. So we've seen Judas' response, but how does Jesus respond? Jesus rebuked Judas, but received Mary's worship. Look at verse 7. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, this is a difficult little sentence here because we're like, wait a second. She, she is still going to keep it or not? And, and there's some different ways of, of reading this. But first he says, leave her alone. And then he says, that she may keep it for the day. Well, what, what is she keeping? Some, one view is to say that she's keeping some of the perfume and Jesus, it, the, the burial's coming. But that's probably, that's not very likely because in Mark it says that she broke it. And what is Judas' big thing? That she wasted it. It's not that she poured a little bit. She's, he's looking and he's upset because she wasted all of it in his view. So I don't think that's the view. The other view, possibly, is that keep it, and what Jesus is referring to is keep the memory. Don't ruin what she's doing right here. Don't ruin this precious act of worship by rebuking her. Let her keep this for the day of my burial. That might be it. The, the third view is the one that I prefer, is that leave her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial, meaning she did the right thing. She has held this. She has saved this thing that was so precious, that was so worthy, and she used it for my burial. But here's the thing. Now, one of the things, why, why is Jesus bringing up this whole burial? Well, one of the things, the, one of the results that is amazing is that what Mary did in, when he received her offering is Mary did something that probably far surpassed her own understanding. 
She was doing a beautiful expression of worship, but she probably did not understand the full reality of what she was doing. She was preparing his body for death. One of the beautiful principles that we have is that God often uses our limited and human worship in ways that far surpass our comprehension. That Mary offers something not knowing what it's going to be, and God uses that in an incredible way, not only in preparing for his burial, but as an example for thousands of years, for millions of Christians. But she keeps it. And one of the interesting things is that she keeps it for his burial. Is this the first burial that Mary is coming in contact with? What just happened in the story a little bit before? Her brother. The one that she's overwhelmed with emotion because he died. And she didn't use it then. But she uses it for Christ. What we see here is two different aromas. There's the positive smell, and then there's the stinky smell. Mary's worship was a sweet aroma, but what of Judas' actions? This is what 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14 says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Judas has the stench of death on him. Mary has the, the, the fragrance of life in her worship. So here's some practical questions for us. Is Jesus worth more to you than any other thing? Is Jesus worth your time? Is he worth your talents? For some of you, for being worth your talents is meaning that you use your talents to praise him. For others of you, it means that you are laying aside your talents to do what he has asked you to do right now. But are, is he worth your talent? Is he worth your treasure? Is Jesus worth everything? Are you coming humbly to Jesus? Do you see him as higher than you in every way? Is your worship a sweet aroma not only to God, but to those around you? Ephesians 5.2 says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In Christ, our privilege is to be a positive part of his plan. Be a part of God's plan as you offer fragrant worship to the one who is worthy. Worship like Mary. So now let's go to the next, the next vignette, just uh, verses 9 through 11. And now let's look at this next part. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Here's the next point that I want you to fill out. Walk like Lazarus. Walk like Lazarus. Notice what is happening. People find out in the first verse that Jesus is there. That Jesus is in Bethany. Because in the previous passage, they're wondering, where's Jesus? Is he going to come at all to this feast? And now he's here. 
And Jesus is already a known person at this point. He draws attention wherever he goes. But look what it says. Jesus is not the only one they came to see. When they came, um, they came not only on account of him, on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Who do they want to see? They want to see Lazarus. They've been hearing things about Lazarus. Now, there's a possibility that because Jesus left, because he knew they were wanting to put him to death, there's a good possibility, a good chance that Lazarus has kind of been um, a recluse up till now. He's kind of been in hiding of his own, and people really haven't seen him. But now they hear that both Jesus and Lazarus are at this feast, and so a large crowd goes to see him. But why? Why do they want to see him? Because he was raised from the dead. It says, whom he had raised from the dead. What is Lazarus? Lazarus walked as a living testimony of the power of Christ over death. He's a walking billboard to what Christ has done. No one here, look at this, no one is looking and saying at Lazarus, and man, wow, Lazarus must be a really powerful guy. Lazarus brought himself back to life. No one's saying that. It says, whom he had raised from the dead. They know that this was Jesus who had done this. Here's the principle. A transformed life should always point to the one who did the work. Lazarus, as he walks around, people are saying, whoa, that's the power of Christ? It's the power to bring dead to life? The first result of Lazarus, Jesus' revealing walk, is that a large crowd came to Jesus. But just like our last vignette, not everyone is pleased with what Lazarus is doing. Look at verse 10. So, the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Why? Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Because on account of whom? Because on account of Lazarus. Because of his walk. Now there's two ironies in, in that of what we see with the Pharisees here. The first one is, who are they planning to kill? Lazarus. What just happened to Lazarus? How effective do we really think this plan's going to be? <laughs> like, uh, he's just, we really think that this is the best plan that we can have? Let's put the guy that conquered death, who came back to life, let's put him to death again. Kill him again! But the other irony is, what was the argument that they used to justify their actions in the previous passage? What did Caiaphas say to the priests and, and Pharisees of why they were going to do? It's better for one man to die. What are they planning in this passage? Another man to die. Here's the principle. A single, quote, a single sin is never a solution to your perceived problem. It will always inevitably lead to more sin. If you think that, you know what, I'm looking at this problem, but I have a solution. I can do this one sin. I know it's not best, but that's going to solve everything. That's never going to happen. Isn't that what David did? David sleeps with Bathsheba. What's his solution? Oh, I know. Let me get her husband drunk. 
let me bring him back. Let me try to make him sleep with her. Then it's not going to, even though it's my son, no one's going to really blame me. They won't know. So he lied. He covered it up. That didn't work. What was his next plan? Let's kill him. Let's put him to death. And that cycle would have continued. That continual cycle of finding another and another and another sin, trying to cover up a perceived problem. David didn't need Bathsheba. But he saw it as something like, no, I I need her. What broke that cycle was when David confessed his sin, when he was broken before God, when Nathaniel confronted him. It's the same thing that the priests and Pharisees are doing. Oh, we'll do one thing. We'll put Jesus to death. All right, that's not working. You know what? Let's expand the plan. Let's put Lazarus to death. What's gonna, what are they going to continue to do? What's going to be the result of all of, these, the, uh, all of the disciples of Christ? They're all going to be put to death. They're going to kill Peter. They're going to kill Thomas. They're going to kill them all. It's not one death. They're going to keep on pursuing this thing, trying to solve what they perceive it as, as a problem, but it wasn't a problem. And the reason they are so upset, the real reason is that they, the Jews, were leaving and many believed in Jesus. What are they leaving? Their power. They're leaving the authority of the chief priests. This is what they were so scared about. We will lose our place and our nation. Now, now here's, here's the part where we're now going to look at the biblical theology of this. Because you might be saying, Stephen, are you suggesting that my life should have the kind of impact that Lazarus' life did? That doesn't really seem reasonable. That guy was literally dead, and Jesus rose him from the dead and gave him life. Let's be realistic here. I think you guys know where I'm going with this. Colossians 1.10, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Walk in him. Colossians 2, verses 6 through 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Here's the principle. My life in Christ is a far greater miracle and testimony of Christ's power over death than Lazarus' resurrection. My life in Christ far surpasses the miracle of Lazarus' resurrection. We talked when we went through that message that physical death is a shadow of a deeper and darker reality. The deeper and darker reality is spiritual death, that we are separated from God because of sin. The physical death reminds us of that problem. That's what happened in the garden. On the day that you eat of this, you shall surely die. As death entered through one man's sin, so death went to all, for all sinned. The problem isn't physical death. The problem is spiritual death. That's the bigger one that we don't know how to solve. But Jesus solves that. That's the bigger miracle. So here's the practical question. Is your life a living, breathing, walking demonstration of Christ's life-giving power? Are you a walking billboard of the transformation that only Christ can accomplish?
Is your testimony a thorn in the side of the enemy to the point where they are striving to destroy or disqualify your testimony? They want to kill Lazarus because of how effective his walk is, how effective his testimony is. Is that your testimony? Does your life cause others to reflect on the truth of who Jesus is? Look at what happened. Many believed. Now, there's some implications of that. What if no one ever saw Lazarus? What if he remained hidden? What if he avoided all other people? That's what we sometimes do. We just avoid any interaction with the world. We don't let them see. What if Lazarus had stayed in the cave? What if Lazarus hadn't taken off the burial clothing? What if he just stayed hiding in the dark? I wouldn't reveal it. He was out. People saw him. Lazarus reeked of death before Christ raised him, but when then Jesus gave him new life. That means that we don't want to walk around as if we're still dead. We don't want to walk around still smelly. In Christ, our privilege is to be a positive part of his plan. Be a part of God's plan by walking as a living, breathing testimony of Christ's life-giving power. All right, let's look at now at the last vignette. But this one, I'm not going to give you the word. You might figure it out on yourself, but we're going to come back to that. First, we're going to start with the results. So let's look at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. All right, so they hear that something's happening, and so this is what they do. This is the result. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They take palm branches, and palm branches were really had become a national sign of victory. They're taking these things, and they're saying, we've won. They cry out, Hosanna. We sang it earlier this morning. It's an exclamation of praise. What they say after that is also a quote from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These are messianic terms. Even the king of Israel. They're, they're praising him as the Messiah. They're praising him as God. That's the first result. And I haven't said of, of what, but this is the, that's the first result. The second result is that prophecies were fulfilled. Look what it says in verse 14 through 15. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This comes from Zechariah 9, 9. It's the fulfillment of that prophecy. But just like when Mary did something, and it was a good thing, but there were deeper things going on, there's deeper things going on here. Because everyone is praising Jesus, and it is praise. Because even in Luke, uh, in Luke's account of, of the triumphal entry, some Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, hey, stop your disciples, stop them from doing this. And Jesus says, if they didn't do it, the rocks themselves would sing my praise. The rocks themselves would do what they're doing. So Jesus is praised through this. But there's deeper realities. Look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things 
had been written about him and had been done to him. What didn't they understand? What did the, were the disciples missing? They were missing the deeper realities of what was going on here. We talked about palm branches. What were palm branches? It was for victory. Is Christ entering in victory? They are appropriate palm branches because his victory was guaranteed. He was the conquering king who had come into the stronghold of his enemy, death. But it wasn't the victory that the crowds expected. He did not ride in defiance of Rome. He humbly rode with purpose as he confronted his true enemy, sin and death. What is the word that they say? Hosanna! Now that's a really interesting term. So, so and, and just to understand a little bit, what, what language, if someone knows, what language do the Jews, did the Jews used to speak? Hebrew, right? Old Testament's written in Hebrew. What do they write, what do they speak now in, in this time with Jesus? Aramaic. And it's been about 200 years that they've been speaking that. And so when they quote these things, they often are quoting in Aramaic. They're saying things, they're speaking in their language. Except John very specifically will say words so, and translate them. So if they call Jesus rabbi, well, that's Hebrew. They don't use the Aramaic word for teacher. They use the Hebrew word. And then John, in his book, multiple times, will, he'll explain and he sa- he'll say rabbi, which means teacher. So in this phrase, what they have here is they have Hosanna, and then they have the rest of what they say. But Hosanna is a non-translated word. They're saying that kind of in Hebrew. For, for example, the word hallelujah, that's not a translated word. It's originally Hebrew that then was used in Greek and now is in pretty much every single language. It's praise Yah God. And now that word has maintained its meaning. When we sing, say hallelujah, it still means praise God. Hosanna, though, has become for them a term of praise But it comes from a different meaning. So the etymology, the history of the word is different. I told you that they were quoting Psalm 118, 25 and 26. This is what the word is in Psalm 118, verse 25. Save us, we pray. Those words put together and kind of changed a little bit are Hosanna. Save us, we pray. Now, we don't know if the crowds understood the etymology of the word. Because for them, it means praise. Praise him. Blessed is he. Worship him or or honor him. But what's behind the scenes is save us, we pray. What an appropriate thing for the crowds to say as Christ comes to the final, this final battle between him and death. Save us, we pray. Blessed is he is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. But then there's the riding on a donkey. It's a messianic prophecy, but there's deeper contextual meaning because he's quoting Zechariah 9, but we have to look at what else does Zechariah 9 say? Well, first it says in Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. And then it says, Righteous and having salvation 
is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The deeper reality is that this king who is entering brings salvation. Behold, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation is he. But then Zechariah 9.10 says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So what is it also saying in Zechariah? That this king who is entering is the prince of peace. He brings peace. So let's see what it says. So Zechariah says, this king brings salvation. This king brings peace. How? How does he rescue? How does he save? How does he bring peace? This is what Zechariah 9.11 says. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. How is the salvation coming? How is the rescue happening? How is the king conquering? By his blood. This is not a humanistic message where the goal is just try harder. Be more like Mary. You can't be like Mary. Mary couldn't even be like Mary. Our only hope is in the transformation of Christ. This is the purpose that God is coming to that he is coming to conquer sin and death, and he does that through the cross. He does that through his blood. Our only hope is if we place our faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only way in which we can be part of God's plan, is if we are in Christ, which is only for those who have placed their faith in him. Christ humbled himself. It says in Philippians 2.8, he comes on a donkey humble because that's how he came to earth. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and then he conquered that death. These verses show us not only the why of worship, but the how. The why we worship is because he is worthy. He is the Messiah. The how is because he is the conquering Messiah who brings salvation and rescues us by the covenant of his blood. We are not the hero of this story. But in Christ, we have the privilege to be a positive part of his plan. Now let's look a little bit further in these verses because now we'll finally fill in that blank. What was the thing that kind of started this whole process going? Look what it says in verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Here's what you can write down. Witness like the crowd. Some of you probably already had that. Look what it says next, verse 18. The reason why the crowd, different crowd, okay? So there's a crowd in 17, then there's a crowd in verse 18. They're different crowds. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him, different crowd, was that they had heard he had done this sign. How had they heard? Because the crowd that had seen what Jesus did continued to bear witness. Don't lose the fact of that verb there. Continued. It was an ongoing process. They continued to bear witness to the work that they had seen Christ do. 
Here's the principle. God has chosen to use the imperfect witness of sinners to accomplish his sovereign plan. God chose to use the witness of this crowd that are sinners. God chooses to let his word go forward through us, through sinners. But how often are we neglecting to continue to bear witness to Christ? But we've seen the work he's done. We've seen him bring dead people to life. Do we continually bear witness? Not Again, the contrast is that not everyone is excited about the witness that they've accomplished. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The crowd is pointing people to Jesus. They are pointing to his great works. They are amazed by what he has done, but the Pharisees are dismayed. Why? Because they see Christ winning and as them losing. And they're not wrong. They're right. They are losing. They're gaining nothing. See, the world is going away. There's an irony here because they're talking in hyperbole, but they don't understand how true their words are. Truly, the world is going after him. The world is coming to believe. But the crowd wants to bear witness to Jesus, and the Pharisees are like, no, no, bear witness to ourselves. We at, look, it's these rules. Do these things. Here's the application. They continued to bear witness. It was continual. Your gospel witness must include more than just a transformed life. Yes, walk like Lazarus. But we, we hear this expression every once in a while, uh, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. It's necessary. You have to use words. So yes, hopefully your testimony coincides with the words you're saying, but you must actually speak words. Continually bear witness to the work of Christ. Be a part of God's plan, because in Christ our privilege is to be a positive part of his plan. Be a part of God's plan by continually witnessing with words to the work of Christ. We're going to finish this up right here, but here's, here's something I want to ask all of us. As we're wanting to be a positive part of God's plan, how do we determine that? How do we evaluate whether or not we're being a positive part? You know, this morning I've clearly promoted one group of people in our passage over another, but that's as an outsider. That's me having the privilege of looking at as everything as the omniscient narrator's perspective. What about when we're in that moment? Do you think that Mary in that moment is like, whoa, did I do something wrong? Think about the results that every single one of these people faced in each of our vignettes. What did Mary encounter humanly? Opposition. Judas rebuked her. What about Lazarus? They wanted to kill him. What about the crowd? Pharisees want to stop the witness. If we're looking at this humanly, did any of these people get the result that we would want to get? Not totally. They got some of them, but not totally. All of them faced great opposition. But here's the thing that we need to know. This is the principle that we, I want to finish with, is that do not sacrifice faithfulness in order to achieve human results. Imagine if Mary was worried about what she thought Judas might say and she didn't do her worship. 
Imagine if Lazarus was scared because he thought that they might put him to death as well, and so he stayed hidden. Imagine if the crowd, knowing that the Pharisees and priests had said that they would put anyone out of the synagogue, out of the temple, if they claimed Christ to be the Messiah, if they did that, imagine if they were scared and didn't bear witness. God's plan still would have been accomplished, but their role would have been very different. Be faithful to the role that Christ is calling you to do. In Christ, our privilege is to be a positive part of his plan. Worship like Mary. By holding nothing back from Christ, but seeing him as worthy of all our praise, worship him by humbling yourself completely before him. Let your worship be a sweet aroma to all around you. Walk like Lazarus. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Let your life be a living testimony to the power of Christ who has given life to the dead. Witness like the crowd. Continually and constantly tell others of the works Christ has done. Support your words with the walk of one who has life, but do not neglect to witness with the words of the work Christ has done. For those of us in Christ, this is our privilege. Do not waste it pursuing the praise and results of this world. Because in Christ, our privilege is to be a positive part of his plan. Let's sing now a song that just includes that element of understanding that this is his story, that he's the hero, and yet God allows us, he gives us the privilege to be part of it.